I love traveling. I know um, some of you do as well. And just the, the idea of seeing the world and experiencing the different cultures and languages and foods and all the different things that the world has to offer. This place is, uh, the world that we live in is, is pretty amazing that way. Um, travel is off also a really interesting metaphor for life. It's, in fact, it's a part of our church's name, this idea of us being on a journey together through this life and walking on the path and following Jesus and, and all of these sort of things. But if you travel in, in regular, everyday um, life, in a physical sense, you're traveling to different locations, you undoubtedly, if you travel at, at, at any length, whether it's a road trip or whether it's international travel, you have travel misadventures that you could report on. We could go around the room telling stories about the time you missed your flight or the time that you had that flat tire and you were miles from anywhere. These travel uh, stories and adventures come with misadventures sometimes. And I want to tell you about a, a, a small example of this from this last week in my own life. So my wife and I were invited to take part on a pastor's appreciation dinner cruise out on Lake Coeur d'Alene. We're like, wow, okay, that's cool. Let's do that. So we arrange uh, someone to hang out with our kids while we go on this adventure together, drive out to Coeur d'Alene, the 45-minute drive or whatever from our house, get out there, and we get out there enough time to get to the cruise. We're told that it leaves at 6 p.m., and we need to get out there. And so we go to, we park over by the Coeur d'Alene Resort, and we go to where we think the boat is, and then I'm just kind of all turned around because there's a map on, that I was sent, a, a point on Google Maps. Open this thing and walk over to where this location is. And I, I'm all disoriented. I can't figure out which way is east, west. We're told to park on the east side of the resort and then to go to this place on the Google Map thing. And I go to where I think all the little dinner cruise ships are, which is on the side that's, if you've ever gone on like the Santa Cruz or something, in, in, on Lake Coeur d'Alene, it's like there's all these boats lined up next to the resort. And I'm sure that's where we're supposed to be, but that's not where the point is on the map. And then I start walking to where the point on, is on the map, and then I second-guess myself, and we walk back, and Pam's walking with me, and, and we're trying to figure out what's going on. And I feel so disoriented. But finally, when I'm certain of where we need to go, there's this one lonely little cruise ship boat out there on the other side of the resort that's far away from where we are, and it's 6 o'clock. And the boat's supposed to leave at 6, and so we go, I think we, let's, let's try to make it. And so we're hustling over there. Meanwhile, Pam's like sprained her ankle, so she's like hobbling around with me, you know, and, and, and uncomfortable. And, and we hustle as fast as we can over to where this other boat is, and we see it still at the dock. We're like, oh, we're going to make it. We're going to make it to the boat. And I send a message to the guy that invited us to be a part of this dinner cruise, and I'm like, oh, we're, we're coming. And he goes, we're still at the dock. Hurry. And then we hear the boat's motors, the engines just going, and this, the kind of smoke coming out or whatever. And as we are almost to the edge of the dock, that boat begins to pull away from the dock. And so... There, there's a phrase that people use, missing the boat, right? <laughs> you know the phrase, you missed the boat, you missed out on some great opportunity. It's like, but missing the boat that you're supposed to be on is a really unique human experience. It's, it's a weird feeling to go, I'm supposed to be on that boat, but that boat is leaving. Like I don't, and so we did what we could only do, which is just to wave to the people on the, goodbye. We were like the, you know, the old timey folks as the, at the launching of the Titanic or whatever. I didn't have like a little handkerchief to wave, otherwise I would have done that, but we just kind of wave at them, and then we went and watched the Monday night football game and had a date, and it ended up being fine. 
But it was, that, it was such a weird experience to miss the boat, literally, right? And it's one of, like, there, there's other stories I could share, but that was the most recent one of travel misadventures. We're going to be talking today uh, about the Apostle Paul and a boat trip that he was on that he probably would have rather missed the boat that he was on. We're in Acts chapter 27, and today is the final week of our series through the book of Acts. We've been tracking through this, this whole summer, starting, I think, in June was when we began the series, and this is week 19 or 20 of our time going through the book of Acts. And we've been covering these major stories as we've been going through the series called Acts to the Ends of the Earth. It's the story of the church. It's the story of the movement and the expansion of uh, Christianity and the gospel message throughout the ancient world. And we've been telling these stories about the Apostle Paul and Peter and all of these main characters and how Jesus left them with this challenge at the beginning to go and be my witnesses. You will go and be my witnesses to this ever-widening circle of influence where the message is going to spread. And it's going to take some time, and it's going to look like you're not making a lot of progress at times, but it's going to continue, and inevitably the kingdom of God will expand and more and more people as these little communities are popping up all over the ancient Mediterranean, all over the ancient world. This, these communities of faith, they're starting churches and appointing leaders for these churches and, and, sh- and sharing the message and going to the Jewish people first and then going to the Gentiles and anybody who would come uh, is welcome into the family of God. And we see just the stories and the, the God's provision and the way he, he, he cared for his people all during this amazing adventure that they'd been on. We're going to see um, in Acts chapter 27, we're going to read a story of Paul's shipwreck. It's an adventure story. It's one of the most um, adventure-filled chapters in the Bible of, of what they're going through. And we're going to see that Paul, even though he doesn't miss the boat, he makes it on this boat that he wishes he wasn't on, because he's journeying through this life with Jesus, because he's walking on this path with Jesus, he can be courageous even when the journey that he's on goes sideways. And we'll see how sideways it gets. So Acts 27 will be in verse 13 in just a moment. I'm going to tell you what happened in verses 1 through 12. Um, Paul set sail for Rome. Last week we talked about the trial, his final trial that he was on um, before Festus and Agrippa. And he's appealing to Caesar, which means that he's going to go to Caesar. He's bringing his case all the way to the Supreme Court, so to speak, in ancient Rome. And as the trial has kind of come to an end, they said he could have been set free except he appealed to Caesar. Paul did that for his own safety, knowing that he wouldn't get a fair trial Uh, back in Jerusalem, and so he begins to leave from Caesarea to Rome by boat, which is a pretty long voyage, certainly in ancient times that would have been a very long voyage through the Mediterranean and heads towards Rome. They're leaving at a late time for that kind of travel during the ancient times, and even today, the seas, November through March, are, are really rough to sail on in the Mediterranean. And I, from firsthand experience, I've been on the seas during that time in that part of the world, and the seas are very rough during that time of the year. And so they would travel during the warmer weather months, but once October, November happened, it was like, it is, you're done, you only stay close to shore, or you don't sail at all. They get to a place called Fair Havens, a long part of the journey, and that's a great place just a title, a great name for a port, but this place called Fair Havens, which they didn't feel was actually a great place to stop for the winter. So they said, we'd like to go to Phoenix for the winter, another port named Phoenix, which I find just also interesting. It's like, we got to get to Phoenix for the winter. Some people still still do that, right? Um, 
And as Paul says, hey, I've been on some voyages before, essentially, he's like, I, I think that it's a bad idea for us to leave Fair Havens and try to get to Phoenix because we're so late in the year. The seas are rough. This was not Paul's first shipwreck. Paul had been involved in other shipwrecks, he tells us um, in, I believe it's 2 Corinthians. So Paul, they don't listen to Paul. They say, all right, we're going to set sail. And almost immediately things go bad. And that's where our storm picks up, or that's where our story picks up and the storm will pick up in verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed, sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, that's hard to say, called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Stop there for just a moment and then we'll, we'll continue reading. So we, this is, there's several things we notice already about this passage. One, it's a very detailed account of an ancient ship voyage, which is really interesting that all, all of these descriptive terms about the, car, the, the cargo, of course, the ship's tackle, the ship's boat, that there was the boat that they were all on, the ship that they were all on, and there was another boat that was, they were dragging along with them that would have been more like a lifeboat or, or more like a smaller boat to scout out a port, that kind of thing. And all of, they're, they're stuck in this storm. And the storm is actually the safer place to be if you're on an ancient ship. You don't want to be near the shore. It, it, if, if a bad storm is coming into your area. You want to actually go out to sea in some cases. When I was stationed on a ship in the Navy, that's what we did. There's like a hurricane coming near. Well, we're going out to port because it's dangerous for a ship to be, or we're going out to sea because it's dangerous for a ship to be in port because it could be destroyed against um, the shore. So they head out to sea. It's, it mentions in verse 20, neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. What, what's the problem there? Direction. That was how they sailed, right? It's like the stars would tell them which direction was northeast, the cardinal points, northeast, southwest. And this was obviously the days before the compasses and the days before their other navigation tools. And so this was how you sailed to know where the sun is. It rises in the east and, and sets in the west, not having the ability to do that. They don't know where they are. All hope is draining out of these people on board the ship. It is a dangerous, scary situation. Let's pick it up in verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who, are, who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being, being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. 
So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms a little further, and they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the, on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they did notice a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, and at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail into the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So this is quite a story. This is, this is quite an adventure uh, that Paul was on. And, you know, it's a story that I'm sure he loved to tell years later, but not something that he enjoyed experiencing while it was happening. But they're in this situation that is so dangerous. It's so scary. And I want you to notice a few things about this story. One is that how, how great a resource Paul is on this trip. Paul is somebody that is, is not just a really one-dimensional person. Sometimes People could think about Christians that we only care about, you know, there's a, there's a phrase, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. That's a phrase that some people use. That, that you're, all you care about is the spiritual realm, that, that you're not really like a great person to have around in a crisis. And I, I think that's a mischaracterization of, of Christians. I don't know how fair that is, but that's certainly a perception that some people have. But Paul here is actually a huge resource to everybody on the ship. He is someone that's there as a Christian, and he's interested in their, their hope levels and where they are spiritually and things like that. He's looking out for the discouraged people. He's like, we need to eat some food. You guys have been, it's been two weeks, and no one's eaten anything. Part of that makes sense, right? If you're on the ship and you're feeling that seasickness, right, you're probably not going to be real hungry. But he sees, you guys need some strength. Knowing what's about to happen, we're going to be beached on some Island, I'm not sure what the island is, but God has told me that we're going to make it out of this, that all of us are going to make it out of this. He's, he's praying for them, but he's also just looking out for them. He's got all this travel experience too, so he knows that you're not supposed to be on the, on the Mediterranean during this time of the year. But he's such a great resource. He's, he is the kind of person you want to ha have around in a crisis. And I think that should be true, and I hope that is true of, of most Christians, that they're just folks that are just helpful in life in general. They're there when you need them. They're, they're helpful to have um, around when you're going through a difficult time. Paul is, is approaching this whole situation, this storm and how difficult this journey is, with a whole, just a completely different approach 
than the people that he's voyaging with. Another interesting thing we got to point out too before we move on is that there's a lot of we words used here, right? Like, so which implies that the author of the book of Acts, Luke, is with him for this whole experience. And then we're told also that Aristarchus, who's another, who's Paul refers to at another time as his fellow prisoner, that he's there with him as well. So there's at least three Christians on this boat. But they have hope in God's promises. And because of that, they can face this difficulty knowing that God is going to bring them through it. Paul has, he's like, I've got an appointment with Caesar. I know we're going to make it through this together. And I want you to have hope as well. The God that I worship, the God that I've served has promised me that we're going to make it through this. And he says these words. And imagine how that must have felt to the people on the storm-tossed ship and how afraid they were and how hungry they were and how ill they probably felt being tossed on the waves to be told that we're going to make it through this when they were all losing hope. It says, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. That's how they describe it in verse 20. There's an interesting interplay here between uh, God's, God's sovereignty and our human choice. You know, there's a, a lot of, kind of a, a, in the Christian circles, this debate about like, well, God is sovereign, and so, and, but we also have free will, and so how do those two things work together? If God is sovereign and what God wants is what happens, how, can, how does free will calculate into that? Do, do we have a choice? Like, are we just kind of following like robots because God, God is sovereign and we don't have any free will? And, and there's, you know, different schools of thought and different the, theologies. There's kind of the Arminian, uh, Wesleyan view, the Calvinistic view that, that emphasizes God's sovereignty over, over human choice, or the other side that would emphasize human choice over God's sovereignty. And this is kind of a theological debate we get into. But we see here in this passage a really interesting interplay between human choice and God's sovereignty. That Paul is resting in the promises of God. He knows that they're going to make it through. He knows that they will be saved. But then something happens. There's some shenanigans on the ship, right? And the sailors, they're like, we're leaving. We can tell that we are getting close to shore. They're taking these soundings, and it's 20 fathoms, 15 fathoms, which means the, the shore, the, it's getting more and more shallow, implying that they are reaching some kind of shore. Even though it's dark and they can't see, they perceive that they're near there, and, and they're going to leave them all. <laughs> they're looking out for themselves. We're going to make it out of this. Good luck, guys. And Paul says, if that plot happens, he tells the centurion, if the sailors are allowed to escape, we will all be lost. Or you will be lost, is what he tells them. Like, I got an appointment with Caesar, but you guys, I don't know. Which is really interesting, right? That There's this, God has promised that all the people on board that ship will, will survive, but they have this role to play. They have something that they must do. That somehow there's both of these things are true. That they have something that relies upon them to carry out. Otherwise, this thing won't happen. But God is sovereign and God has promised and they have. And both of these things are true in a way that I cannot fully wrap my mind around. But I know that the Bible affirms both of these things. That we do have meaningful human choice. It's not an illusion that we have, we have choice and free will. And God is sovereign. And what God says is going to happen is going to happen but we have some responsibility to play, that these are both true things. We see this in other parts in the Bible too. In earlier in our study in the book of Acts, I believe it was Acts chapter 4 or Acts 5, where Peter's standing up in front of the, the gathered people in Jerusalem that have witnessed this miracle, and he says to them, you put to death the author of life. It, you're responsible for carrying out this great evil thing, the author, the creator of life, you put to death. And then later he says that 
God foretold this and fulfilled this. But then he says, you need to repent. That both of these things are true. God foretold this and fulfilled it. God carried it out, but those people took part in this thing that they were responsible for. Both of these things are true at the same time. They are responsible and accountable for their actions and need to be called to repentance. But also this is a part of God's foreknowledge and fulfillment. In, in the story of Joseph back at the Old Testament, we see this, this whole this phrase that he uses with his brothers. Um, the, the quick recap of that story, if you're, if you're not able to remember it immediately, is that Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. He's, Joseph's the favorite brother amongst all these brothers. And they sell him into slavery, and he gets carried off to Egypt as a slave and still rises through the ranks of his master's home and gets more and more responsibility, but gets thrown into prison and spends all this time in prison, has these dreams where about um, God, God speaks to him through dreams, and he's able to tell Pharaoh, he stands before Pharaoh after years in, in jail as someone that's saying, hey, there's years of famine coming, and we need to be prepared for these years of famine. There's years of plenty followed by years of famine. And because Joseph is in that place at that time, he's able to save many, many people from starvation, including his own family eventually. And there's this moment where he's reunited with his brothers who did something that I think many, many people, most people would have trouble forgiving. And Joseph is, is reconciled to his brothers in this moment. And he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You, you did something and you meant it to only be a, an evil thing, but God took that same thing you did and brought good out of it. And God meant for good to come out of this evil thing that you were doing. It's this really interesting interplay between our human choice and the sovereignty of God. One other thing that I want to point out about this passage before we continue is just the everyday brutality of life during Paul's time. The fact that those sailors would, would just leave, leave them to die. Like, oh, we don't care, we're leaving. And then, the, then when, they're, when the ship is breaking up, and these men have a choice to, like, to, to sink with the ship or try to swim, and not all of them could swim. That would have been unusual in ancient times to be, for, for the majority of people to be swimmers. But the, the, the soldiers were ready to put them to death, knowing that if these people escaped onto this island, that, it, that the cost of that would be their own lives, the soldiers. You're responsible for making sure these people make it to Rome so that they could probably die in the gladiatorial things in the Colosseum, the battle against a wild beast you know, the, for entertainment of the masses. But if, you don't, if they don't make it there, it'll be at the cost of your life. And so there's a risk to letting these soldiers not kill the, the prisoners. But the centurion, knowing that if they start killing prisoners, they might kill Paul. And he's like, I definitely want to protect Paul's life. We're, we're, when we hear things like that, it, it should sort of outrage you. Like, why would they just take hundreds of lives of these prisoners? Like, that's so barbaric and so messed up. But that was everyday life. Life was not valued the way we value it today. And even this goes to this idea that, that we value human life more as a, as a worldwide society and culture because of the, how much Christianity has influenced the way we think. That This comes from the idea of, like this whole human rights idea comes from the Christian faith, that life is valuable and that we're all made in the image of God. And that is something that is priceless, that we do not devalue life, we value life. This comes from the way that the whole world has been transformed, even by this Christian way of thinking. Acts 28, uh, we're going to read how, what happens next, verses 1 through 16. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. 
When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they'd waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. That is such a humorous story there. Like, I, they're, they're watching him, right? They're all kind of waiting back like, we know those snakes are dangerous. Let's watch him see if he swells up or falls down dead. This will be entertaining. Like, um, we see Paul being a resource to the people around him again. Like, he's, he's not like, oh, those people, like, that collect the, they, they built a fire. These guys are bedraggled. They're coming on wreckage of the ship. They make it to the shore. Every single person survives this shipwreck, but they're cold. It's raining. They've come out of the Mediterranean in November or whenever it is, and they're trying to make their way towards the shore, and they're exhausted. They just fought for their life against the roaring sea, and now they're pulling onto the shore, and the, the natives there, the folks the, from Malta, made this fire for them. It was very kind and hospitable for them. And Paul's like, oh, there's a fire. I'm going to go grab some sticks. He helps out. And as he grabs these sticks, puts them on a fire. And now, I don't know if what you'd be thinking if you were Paul in this moment, but I would, I would have some, like, I'd have some pretty choice words maybe come into my mind in this moment. Like, I made it out of the shipwreck. I survived barely. And now I'm just trying to help people. And a snake jumps out and bites my hand. Like, why? Come on. Like, it's already been a bad day. Why does this have to happen? Right? <laughs> the native people are just, they're, they're, they see this and they go, well, the God justice, right? It's capitalized in, in my Bible um, that, you know, and this is the, if you've ever seen like the courtroom or the, the, the whatever, the icon, the little statue of the blind, you know, with the scale, that's the God justice, right? That's the kind of ancient God of justice that is supposed to carry out right things. And so if something bad was going to happen to him, it must have been that he was a murderer and that he's escaped this, but justice will not let him live. And he just, the snake bites him and he's fine. He throws it off into the fire. All good. I was thinking about these people and how, how turbulent and this kind of whirlwind of truth that they're going through, that they go from thinking that he's a murderer that deserves to die to moments later thinking that he's a god that should be worshipped, right? Like, amazing, right? You're a murderer, you deserve to die, justice is not going to let you live. Oh, God, you are, you know, what a wild turn of events for them, too. And I was thinking about this kind of, the, the pagan way that they viewed the world and how, how turbulent that is. This is true. No, this is true. And how unrooted from a real sense of truth and certainty that they were, that they could go from this to this so wildly in such a short amount of time. And I was thinking about in, in, in kind of uncertain times how important it is that we have certain things that we are certain about, that, that our world is turbulent, and that life without Christ makes it even more turbulent. If you don't have something that you're rooted on, and you're some foundation that you're standing on that is solid, how much that makes you unprepared for life and what things will throw at you and how uncertain things are. I love that Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. That he gives us a way to conduct ourselves and a way to live our lives. He also gives us truth to stand on with a capital T. That if we know Jesus, we know truth. 
And if we stay rooted in him, we are prepared for navigating through falsehoods better than those who are not. And he is also the life. So we were in verse 7. We're going to read verses 7 through 16 now. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind came up, or sprang up, and upon, on the second day, we came to Puteoli or something. I don't know. It's near Naples. I know that. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Paul made it to Rome, and what he finds when he gets to Rome is that there are already Christians there. The message of the gospel has already gone before him. We know this as well because he wrote the book of Romans to the church at Rome that he wanted to, to visit, and he finally makes it there. This is like a you know, years-long dream of his to come to Rome someday. Um, so he makes it finally there after this ministry that he gets to take place on the, on the island of Malta, and he's finally arrived at Rome. Now I want to read the last two verses of the book of Acts as we're bringing the plane down for a landing here after 19 weeks here. Verses 30 and 31 say this, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Church history tells us that after this time in um, Rome that he was released, that he spent time in this Roman prison where he had this ministry that he was able to carry out. And Clement, one of the early church fathers, and Eusebius, who wrote an early history of the church, uh, told us that Paul was released from, from prison, that he didn't spend uh, the rest of his life in prison at this point, but he was likely released and went on to minister in Spain, which was a lifelong desire of his. Traveled as far as Spain before he was arrested again and eventually martyred in Rome. But I want to talk about a few takeaways for us as we wrap up our summer-long study in the book of Acts. A few things that we notice that are very helpful for us, thinking about the whole book of Acts as a whole. I think we think about one thing is how to minister cross-culturally effectively to people. That we get to, to realize that the gospel is not, doesn't have these, these boundaries around it about who gets included and who doesn't. That the church wrestled with this over and over again and, and the doors were thrown wide open to anybody from any culture any economic status, any race, you know, anybody was welcome. And that the challenge then, because that was true, was how do you communicate this cross-culturally? How, how do you speak these eternal truths in a way that people that don't have the same background as you can understand? And we see how well the church navigated this in the book of Acts. You keep these core truths intact. You don't alter the truth to make it more acceptable, but how do you get people to, to understand or to hear you? If, if you're talking about Jesus as the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, someone from a Jewish culture, they understand that. That's pretty easy. 
but someone from a Greek culture where they're like, we don't, we don't have that same background understanding the ancient sacrificial system that you're talking about. And, and Paul and, and the disciples wrestle with this and, and, and tackle this problem in a really effective way. Ministering cross-culturally, we see how powerful that is. Second thing I think we see as we kind of 30,000 foot view over the book of Acts is how faithful God is to keep his promises. That God makes these promises about what he's going to do with his people and he always keeps his promises. There's never, he's got a perfect track record. He's never not kept a promise. If he promises his people something, he will always keep that promise. So he tells his disciples, you're going to be standing before important people. And in those moments, I'm going to give you the words to say. I'll also, very early in the book of Acts, said, I'm going to give, your, give my spirit to you. You need to remain in Jerusalem and wait for empowerment that you will need. And then he pours out his spirit upon the church. And every chance that they have to get these promises and to hold on to them, we see that, they, that God keeps his promises, always. Even, of course, in Paul's story, the one that we were just reading. We also see the boldness of the messengers of the gospel. Because God always keeps his promises, and because he's got a plan that we get to be a part of, we see that his people are very bold. In the early days where, where the, the, turn, the, the people in power began to oppress the early Jerusalem church, and there was this moment like, hey, you guys need to keep quiet about Jesus. We don't want this proclaimed in public anymore. And the church prays for boldness. Peter boldly stands up in front of the, the, the Sanhedrin, the Jerusalem council there, and, and says like, hey, you got to do what you got to do, but we, have, we cannot stop talking about what we have seen and what we've experienced. He says, we, and then they went back together, and they didn't pray that God would judge the, the, the Jewish leaders, but that they would have boldness, that they would continue to share the faith far and wide. We talked about this a fair amount last week, but how important the resurrection is, is the fourth thing I want to point out. This over and over again through the book of Acts, that the resurrection is foundational to the Christian faith. And because we talked about that last week, I'll move on to the fifth one. Number five, that the church is unstoppable. The title of the series is Acts to the Ends of the Earth, and we've seen how the progression of the message of Jesus has continued to spread and spread and spread, that God's grace will spread to the ends of the earth. And we see it in these early you know, few decades of the church that we've been reading about through the book of Acts, but we continue to see it in our time, that the gospel cannot be stopped, that it spreads, that even when a country tries to persecute Christians and tries to stamp out Christianity, as many have done over the years, we see that the church continues. And the church, even in hiding or in homes and things like that, continues to grow. China tried to get rid of Christianity during their cultural revolution, and instead they, they spread it underground and it exploded. And there are far more Christians in China today than there were when they started to try to get rid of Christianity. Even in North Korea, where the church has to meet in secret and adult Christians don't even tell their kids that their family is Christian until they're old enough to be able to not let that slip in their school that their family are Christians. Even there, the church prevails. Even there, the kingdom of God continues to expand, that God's grace continues to spread far and wide. There's a selection from a study Bible that I opened the series with back earlier in the summer, um, back when it was still summer. Summer's over now. Um, and I want to read it again because I think it does such a great job encapsulating and, and, and describing what we've been going through this summer. It's from a study Bible called the Gospel Transformation Bible that, that I have that I really like. Acts reveals God's passionate pursuit of his people beginning with his followers in Jerusalem, expanding to Samaria, then to the rest of the world. 
By the end of the book, we will see Paul living in Rome, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The gospel draws people in, constitutes them as the church centered on the grace of Jesus, and then sends them out in mission to the world. The new group of believers is marked by the Holy Spirit, who creates such a distinctive community that others are drawn in experiencing God's grace. At the same time, they take the gospel message to new people and new lands, making God's grace known to the ends of the earth. The gospel's expansion is the culmination of what God has been doing since the beginning. Luke consistently grounds salvation in the ancient purpose of God, which comes to fruition at God's own initiative. Acts shows that the new Christian movement is not a fringe sect, but the culmination of God's plan of redemption. What, we see, what, we, what was seen only as shadows in the Old Testament, God reveals finally and fully through Jesus Christ. The book of Acts does not primarily provide human patterns to emulate or avoid. Instead, it repeatedly calls us to reflect upon the work of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ, establishing the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are invited to enter and participate in a story that is much bigger than we are. In Acts, the gospel expands not through human strength, but through weakness, opposition, and persecution. Demonic forces, worldly powers and authorities, governmental opposition, language and cultural barriers, intense suffering and bloody persecution, unjust imprisonment, unbelief, internal disunity, and even shipwrecks and snakes all threaten to slow down the gospel's advance. But opposition and suffering do not thwart the spread of Jesus' grace. Rather, they fuel it. The gospel spreads despite barriers of geography, ethnicity, culture, gender, and wealth. Many of these barriers appear so inviolable that when the gospel is preached to a new segment of society, riots ensue. But Luke makes clear that no one is beyond the scope of God's saving power, nor is anyone exempt from the need for God's redeeming grace. All people receive the grace of God through one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus' gospel goes out to all places and all types of people because Jesus is Lord of all. Acts ends in almost an abrupt way. We read those two verses, 30 and 31. It just kind of stops. Paul's in prison, and for two years, it says, he continues to invite people in to hear the message of Jesus. Well, what happens after two years, Luke? It doesn't tell us. Well, like I said, we know from church history that he was likely released and then was later imprisoned, and, and we think Second Timothy was his last letter that he ever wrote. And he describes awaiting his execution and finishing his race and all of this. But there was almost, like I said, this abrupt end to the book, which should make us think like, well, what, what's the next chapter? And that chapter has continued to be told and continue to be written throughout church history over the 2,000 years almost since this time. But then we take up the pen and we continue to write our, our place in history and our story and how we will steward what has been handed down to us. Will we be faithful? Will we be bold? Will we be empowered by the Spirit to continue sharing the message of Jesus and continue being the church and continue ex the expansion of the kingdom of God? My son, Sam, when he was, uh, he's, he's nine now, when he was younger, uh, we were reading a children's story Bible to him. My wife, Pam, was reading to him. And we got to the end of the children's story Bible and it ended sort of abruptly, kind of like the book of Acts does. And my son is like, hey, I need the next part of the chapter. I need the next book. You know, where's book number two that goes along with, with this? Because it kind of ended with Revelation, but he was wondering kind of what, what's going to happen next in the story. And my wife was like, this is a really interesting point here because, well, Sam, you're the next part of the story. 
Like you get to live out the next part of the story. We, we, we get to be and continue to be the church and continue this work. And what was started in Acts, we now steward in our day, in our, day, in our generation with an eye toward the next generation and how we're going to be faithful to them and hand it off to them as well. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for our time this summer in the book of Acts. It has been wonderful. It has been so um, important for us to understand where we've come from and how this started and how we get to steward and be a part of, of your work in this world. And so, Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to study this together as a church. I pray that you would use the lessons learned to fuel our service of you and to continue to empower us um, to follow you in our day. And understanding that the, the challenges we face today are not that different from what the early church did. And how can we best steward what we've been handed by you? We are so grateful um, that we can learn from your word. I pray that you'd help us to be faithful to share the message far and wide. To find ways to implement this sharing of our faith and the grace of Jesus with the people around us. In practical ways, um, physically and also spiritually, Lord. Help us to be faithful to be committed to the continued expansion of your kingdom and how we get to play our part. We love you. We thank you so much for this time together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.